Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, October the 23rd, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the mass demonstrations which took place inside Ethiopia in support of the central government ahead of the African Union broker talks uh, scheduled to begin this week uh, between the administration of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and the TPLF in South Africa. The anniversary of the military coup uh, in the Republic of Sudan has highlighted the continuing internal crisis in that oil-rich state. We'll have details on that as well. There were attacks at a hotel in southern Somalia near the town of Kismayo, where casualties uh, have been reported. And floods are still taking place in West Africa amid concerns about the impact of climate change. In the second hour, uh, we listened to an address uh, made earlier today by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa on the recently released State Capture Commission study. The People's Republic of China, as well, uh, has uh, been the scene of the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China. In the final hour, we look back on the 56th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panther Party for self-defense in the Bay Area of California in October of 1966. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a musical interlude uh, with the music of Zaiko Langalanga, uh, the early um, date years of 1970 to 1974. Uh, let's listen I'm not 
Kristo mituna Kona nini vato bako makoto mbokonga Nazali mwana somi Baba changa mose matika na sepera na lati Nanuka nazala firga bimondoko bimondoko
And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we just started out uh, with the music of Zaiko Langa Langa, uh, one of the Pan-African uh, classic uh, jazz bands. Uh, those recordings were from the early uh, 1970s. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story uh, deals with the current situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. Ethiopians uh, from four corners of the country held massive demonstrations to oppose uh, some interest groups unwarranted interference in government law enforcement operations under the theme of I will stand for Ethiopia and raise my voice. Uh, the demonstrators uh, also showcase solidarity to the government's law enforcement operation and oppose the terrorist TPLF's continued belligerence, and that's according uh, to an article that was published in today's uh, Ethiopian Herald. Speaking at the public rally held in Hawassa City, uh, Sidama State Chief Administrator Desta Ladamo uh, said the criminal TPLF has been planning to carry out Western conspiracies and destroy the country because it does not want to live in equality and peace with other Ethiopians. The people of Ethiopia have known the attempts of the TPLF, which has been working in tandem with foreign forces to hamper the peace of the country. Desta noted, adding that the faction is the instrument of historic enemies. The chief administrator further stated that Ethiopia is a country that maintained its independence for long, and has a proud history of withstanding both internal and external challenges. Currently, some interest groups have employed the TPLF as a tool uh, to exert uh, pressure on Ethiopia rather than pushing the criminal group to desist provocations. We Ethiopians are capable of solving our problems by ourselves, and we, as usual, are ready to pay any sacrifice to protect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of our country. On the other hand, Desta highlighted the government's commitment and readiness for peace talks and called on the international community to pressure the outlawed group uh, to disarm and come to the roundtable discussions. Deputy Chief Administrator of uh, Harari State, Misra Abdella, uh, said on her part that the people of Ethiopia are ready to pay any sacrifice to protect the territorial integrity and sovereignty of their country. Indeed, some global powers are exerting unwarranted pressure on Ethiopia, uh, mainly to protect their interests in the guise of human rights violations. For a veteran artist, uh, Debebe Ashutu, Ethiopians are citizens of freedom and had a state long before Europeans and the United States. Ethiopians had a government with religion, language, and law. <clears throat> we have never surrendered to colonialism and never allow foreign powers to guide us how to handle our matters. The pressures to make us kneel started in 1896 when fascist uh, uh, leaders ordered uh, their forces uh, to colonize Ethiopia and its outcome ensured Ethiopia's independence and making us the only country never to be colonized. Later, the situation is a source of hatred by the rest of the world, particularly the Westerners. Squares and other large open spaces in different parts of the country, including Addis Ababa, Hara, Sidama, Balye, Asela, Adama, Jima, and Jijiga, Afars, 
also witnessed the gathering of massive numbers of people from all walks of life. The gathering urged Westerners to refrain from unfair intervention and hold uh, the TPLF accountable for the atrocities it has committed in neighboring states and other areas. Slogans that were chanted by the demonstrators included respect our sovereignty, no parallel armies in a sovereign state, stop interventions in the name of humanitarian assistance, no more proxy wars, among others. And, um, in other reports, this one is for from Borkina. says that Ethiopians across the country on yesterday took to the streets to protest Western powers' intervention in the internal affairs of the country. In the capital, Addis Ababa, millions are marching to Mascal Square chanting slogans. Respect our sovereignty. TPLF is a mercenary group. TPLF is the cause in proxy war on Ethiopia. People in Tigray are our compatriots. The junta TPLF is our enemy, and TPLF should not be given a chance to prepare for the fourth round of attack. By some of the slogans that protesters chatted while marching to Mescal Square. The rally is taking place in many other cities and towns across the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. Ethiopians increasingly tend to think that the Western powers are primarily interested in reviving the TPLF, a rebel group that the Ethiopian parliament designated as a terrorist group in 2021. By the end of 2021, the TPLF took control of most parts of Afar and Amhara regions of Ethiopia. It was about 200 kilometers to reach the capital of Addis Ababa from the northern direction. Western powers at that time were preoccupied with setting up political conditions internationally by creating an impression as if the TPLF forces were about to control the capital city, Addis Ababa. There was no call for an end to the secession of hostilities. Renewed pressure against Ethiopia in connection with the war against the TPLF, the rebels is on the rise as the TPLF forces are losing ground militarily. Ethiopian government confirmed earlier this week that the defense forces control three towns, key towns, Shir, Alamata, and Karim, in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Local sources also indicate that the Ethiopian government has already started distributing food aid in the areas recaptured recently. They are working to restore power to the aforementioned towns is also underway. Earlier this week, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres made claims that the war in Ethiopia is spiraling out of control. His call was echoed uh, by the United States and some of its Western allies. They are advancing. There is no military solution to the conflict, while at times adding voices to the TPLF's unsubstantiated claims about genocide and human rights violations. The World Health Organization Director General, uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom, is also levering his position to create the impression about the inevitability of genocide in Tigray. This week, he claimed that there is a narrow window to reverse genocide in Tigray. Ethiopians are rejecting foreign intervention and proxy wars. The TPLF, for the majority of Ethiopians, indulged in an unnecessary war with the illusion that it would restore the power it dominated for nearly three decades. Foreign intervention is meant to facilitate that. Ethiopians and Eritreans in the United States and Europe are staging protests this weekend as well against Western support for the TPLF and infringement on the sovereign rights of Ethiopia. 
And in other news, uh, in neighboring Sudan, um, uh, the first anniversary is coming up in just two days of the latest uh, military coup. In an article by Jack Jeffrey, it says on his return home from the United Nations General Assembly this year, Sudan's top general descended an airplane stairway in the country's capital to a flurry of cameras, waiting to greet General Abdel Fattah Berhan. Uh, with a smile and a handshake was his deputy and paramilitary leader, General Mohamed Hamdan Delgallo. It was a choreographed moment between Sudan's most powerful men, a show of unity amid rumors of discord. A year after the two generals launched a military coup that upended the country's short-lived transition to democracy, their struggle for individual gain threatened to further destabilize the country. While the fear of a civilian government brought Burhan and Hamete together, there remained many divisions between them, said Amjad Farid, a Sudan analyst and former aide to the country's prime minister deposed in the coup, Abdallah Hamdak. He used Dagalo's nickname, by which he is widely known. The coup and disharmony between its leaders has meant the future of Sudan's governance looks increasingly unsure. It has left a power vacuum that allowed the paramilitary force led by Dagalo, known as the Rapid Support, Support Forces, to assume a, an expanding role. Effective leaders of Sudan's official army and largest paramilitary force, Burhan as, and Delgallo, who were meant to have overseen the democratic transition after former President Omar al-Bashur was toppled following three decades in power in a 2019 popular uprising. But on October the 25th of last year, weeks before Burhan was supposed to step aside as head of the Transitional Council, he led a military coup, unseating the civilian half of the Sudan's ruling sovereign council. Delgallo backed him, his forces helping to detain dozens of civilian officials and politicians. In the aftermath, nearly uh, weekly pro-democracy marches have been ruthlessly suppressed. There has also been a resurgence of deadly clashes in the country's neglected peripheries in which hundreds of people were killed just in recent months. The coup has plunged Sudan's already inflation-riddled economy into deeper peril. International aid has dried up, and bread and fuel shortages caused in part by the war in Ukraine have also become routine. And you can read this article in its entirety at the Pan-African Newswire. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Also uh, in the Horn of Africa, uh, in Somalia, gunmen have stormed a hotel in the center of Somalia's port city of Kismayo. This occurred earlier today, shortly after an explosive packed car went off at the hotel's gate. This is according to the Somalian police. Officials said gunmen were still inside the Tawakal Hotel and security forces were on the scene. The Islamic extremist group Al-Shabaab has already claimed responsibility for the attack. The, <clears throat> the attack uh, began uh, when a car driven by a suicide bomber rammed the entrance gate at the hotel and then exploded. Police officers Abshur Omar told uh, the international press by telephone a number of small businesses along the street were destroyed. Some government officials and traditional elders were eating lunch in the hotel at the time of the explosion. There was no immediate word on casualties. Mohammed Nazi Guled, a senior police official in Juba, 
Land State said three attackers entered the hotel premises. He vowed security forces would end the attack. The hotel is popular as a meeting place for government officials. Kismayo is located about 500 kilometers, that's some 310 miles, from the Somalian capital of Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab is believed to have a strong presence in the area surrounding Kismayo, the largest city and commercial capital in Jubaland. Al-Shabaab, which has ties with Al-Qaeda, regularly carries out attacks in the Horn of Africa nation. And finally, Shiga Onak isn't expecting much of a rice harvest from north-central Nigeria this year after floodwaters submerged his fields and those of so many other farmers this season. Many in Benue State, known as the country's food basket, now find themselves in the unusual position of looking for seedlings in preparation for next year's farming season at a time when they should be harvesting the current crop. The kind of suffering we are passing through now is terrible, Enoch said of the floods. Now Nigeria is worst in more than a decade after killing more than 600 people and forging 1.3 million to flee their homes. Above average rainfall and devastating flooding have affected 5 million people this year in 19 countries across West and Central Africa, according to a new United Nations World Food Program situation report. In Chad, the nation's government has this week declared a state of emergency after floods affected more than 1 million people in that country. This catastrophe resulting from climate change is one of the most severe the region has known for years, acting as a multiplier of misery for communities already struggling to keep their heads above water, said Chad's interim leader, Mahatmat Intras Debe Eatna. The disaster has now worsened the fate of this Central African nation, already going through a food crisis, said Mbain Bangroa, Ajay Koran Node, Ardelf, and Alice, who is located in Chad. Nigeria has recorded at least 600 deaths, while authorities in the neighboring Niger have said that at least 192 people have died there as a result of storms, either from homes collapsing or from drowning in flood waters. Already the floods have led to a major increase in cholera cases and other preventable diseases in Nigeria. The International Rescue Committee, the IRC, warned in a statement on Friday calling for more resources to scale up its responses. Experts point to unusual rainfalls and the failure of governments to set up early warning systems to better prepare for climate extremes. The floods in West Africa are majorly, mainly due uh, to government negligence to environmental-related issues like climate change over a period of time. That's according to Ibrahim Maji, who is a climate research, researcher uh, focusing on the region. The situation boils down to the government's reluctance to address environmental issues, Raji added. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. <clears throat> Concluding this segment uh, of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, 
and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African News represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is log on to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, these programs uh, can uh, be shared with other potential listeners uh, by merely copying and pasting the links and emails and delivering those emails uh, to other potential listeners. Uh, you can also copy and paste the links on the blogs and websites as well as share the links on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more uh, for our program this week. Thank you. 
the voice of uh, the legendary Phyllis Hyman and uh, forever with you and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on this Sunday uh, afternoon, October the 23rd, uh, 2022. And uh, right now we want to move into an address that was delivered just earlier today uh, by South African President Sir Ramaphosa discussing uh, the recently uh, released uh, state capture report. Uh, This um, statement was delivered just several hours ago uh, in South Africa. I'm addressing you this evening on the fulfillment of a responsibility that was given to the President of the Republic nearly six years ago. Yesterday I submitted to Parliament Cabinet's response to the recommendations of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, corruption, and fraud in the public sector. This evening, I wish to outline the critical actions that government is taking and the work that has already been done to give effect to the Commission's recommendations and forever bring an end to state capture in our country. This was no ordinary Commission of Inquiry. It was a commission whose work will have a lasting impact on our democracy and our country and its people. Twenty-five years ago, our new democratic constitution came into effect. As we celebrated this fulfillment of the struggle of the people of South Africa for democracy and peace and freedom, few people could have imagined the depths to which our country would be dragged by greed, selfishness, and the abuse of power. Few people could have imagined that from among the leadership of our public institutions, from within our business circles, from among our public representatives and public servants, would emerge a network of criminal intent. Few could have imagined that this group of people would infiltrate key departments of government, state-owned enterprises, private companies, law enforcement bodies, and security services to loot vast amounts of public funds, that they would weaken and destroy state institutions and thus undermine the capacity of the state. The corruption that was perpetrated in our country is a crime against the people of South Africa. Corruption is a betrayal of our democracy and it is also an assault on the institutions that we established together to advance the values of our constitution and the interests of our people. The money that was stolen robbed our people of resources that should have led to the development of our country and improved the livelihoods of our people. Yet even 
A state capture and corruption sought to compromise our democracy and destroy our institutions. Our democracy remained resilient and the people of South Africa stood firm, defiant and resolute. Despite our achievement at bringing state capture to an end, its effects remain. The difficulties and challenges our country is facing today have many causes, but state capture made a substantial contribution to many of our challenges. When we do not have enough locomotives to carry goods to our ports, when our power stations fail, when our national airline closes routes and cancels flights, when the employees of a state-owned enterprise are not paid, and when our security services are slow to respond to public unrest, we feel the hand and effects of state capture. We see the effects of state capture in other areas as well, in our weekend institutions, in the substantial public debt of some of our institutions, in poor service delivery, and in diminished public confidence in the state. The Commission's report notes that state capture was facilitated by a deliberate effort to subvert and weaken law enforcement and intelligence agencies so as to shield and sustain illicit activities avoid accountability and to disempower opponents. That is why even as the State Capture Commission was being appointed in 2018, this administration was taking decisive steps to end state capture and rebuild our institutions. Since the start of 2018, we have appointed new leadership at the Hawks an institution that was targeted for weakening, which has since then secured 4,500 convictions for corruption and other priority crimes. The National Prosecuting Agency was another institution that was deliberately weakened. We have appointed a new National Director of Public Prosecutions on the recommendations of an independent panel following a transparent public process. We established the NPA Investigating Directorate to prosecute state capture and other significant corruption cases, and now to further strengthen existing anti-corruption capabilities, the Investigating Directorate will be established as a permanent entity within the NPA. We appointed the SIU Special Tribunal to expedite the recovery of stolen goods. Since its establishment, it has recovered over 8.6 billion rand. We undertook measures to end corruption and the politicization at state security agency. We amended the State Capture Commission regulations to enable the sharing of information and resources within the NPA and other state capture cases. 
We appointed new leadership at the South African Revenue Service, SARS, and are rebuilding the institution in line with the recommendations of the Union Commission, which were also endorsed by the State Capture Commission. As a result of these efforts, several major state capture and other serious corruption cases have been brought to court. Yesterday, I submitted to Parliament the Cabinet's response to the findings and recommendations of the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in fulfillment of an order by the judiciary. The submission of this response is a firm and clear indication of the primacy of the rule of law and a demonstration of our democratic system at work. This response constitutes an ethical, moral, and institutional departure from the abuses revealed by the State Capture Commission. This response is also intended to be a platform to mobilize all sectors of our society against fraud, corruption, and state capture now and into the future. We are submitting this response to Parliament six years to the month since former public protector advocate Tulima Donzela released her State of Capture report. The public protector's State of Capture report related to an investigation into complaints of alleged improper and unethical conduct by several state functionaries and private individuals and companies. Having witnessed the proceedings of the State Capture Commission, which were public for all to see, for close on to four years, you, the people of South Africa, naturally seek restoration, redress and accountability. You expect your country's economy and its state to be ethical and free of corruption as it serves your needs and the broader interests of all our people. The actions we are taking in the implementation of the Commission's recommendations are designed to provide redress in respect of the events of the past and to advance the renewal of our society. Through the implementation of the actions contained in this response, we can start a new chapter, a new leaf in our struggle against corruption. We are indebted to the many courageous and brave whistleblowers who brought various allegations of fraud and corruption to the attention of the public protector and those who gave evidence to the State Capture Commission. We are indebted to the men and women who executed their functions tirelessly and honestly in our criminal justice institutions who, without fear or favor, worked to turn testimony presented to the Commission into evidence that can now be of use in prosecutions. We are indebted to the diligent public servants and public representatives, researchers, many journalists, activists, workers and business people who uncovered spoke out against and resisted state capture. 
given the impact that fraud and corruption had in our country, the response to state capture must be a national effort. During the course of its work, the Commission heard evidence from over 300 witnesses and held more than 400 days of hearings. The report of the Commission, consisting of six parts, was handed to the President over a period of six months. The first part of the report was submitted on the 4th of January 2022 and the final of the part of the report on the 22nd of June 2022. Each part of the damning report was made public as we received it. The State Capture Commission report concluded that there can be no doubt that state capture happened in South Africa. In the main, government accepts the findings of the Commission with respect to the existence, the nature and the extent of state capture in South Africa. In terms of the Constitution, the factual findings and recommendations made by a Commission of Inquiry do not bind the President. The President's response to the recommendation of the State Capture Commission may therefore include the acceptance and implementation of a recommendation as set out in the report could also include the implementation of part of a recommendation or where there is good reason there could be a decision not to implement a recommendation. The Commission made over 350 recommendations. Of these, 202 were for criminal and other investigations. 27 were recommendations for the recovery of assets. 15 were referrals to other state bodies for disciplinary offenses, tax offenses, delinquency of directors and other misconduct. 11 were referrals to professional and regulatory bodies for further investigation of individuals for alleged violation of professional codes. Five recommendations proposed constitutional changes. 26 recommendations proposed legislative changes and there were 64 recommendations requiring operational or regulatory changes. The Commission also proposed the establishment of two new institutions and also proposed that there should be a Commission of Inquiry which I will deal with in a while. The recommendations were directed at several institutions both within the state and more broadly in society. The Presidency in acting on this sent copies of the report for consideration and action to the following bodies the African National Congress, the Airports Company South Africa, Alexco, the Auditor General of South Africa, the Banking Association South Africa, the City of Johannesburg, DINEL, the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, ESCOM, the Financial Intelligence Center, the Free State Provincial Government, Independent Electoral Commission, the KwaZulu-Natal Provincial Government, 
the Legal Practice Council, Magistrates Commission, the National Assembly, the National Council of Provinces, National Prosecuting Authority, the Northwest Provincial Government, Office of the Inspector General, Passenger Rail Agency South Africa, South African Airways, South African Broadcasting Corporation, South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, South African Police Service, South African Reserve Bank, SARS, the State Security Agency, and Transnet. The greatest number of recommendations were directed to the law enforcement agencies for investigation and possible prosecution and for the recovery of misappropriated funds. While these agencies are within the executive arm of the state, they are constitutionally and legislatively required and mandated to exercise their responsibilities independently within, without any fear or favor or prejudice. Since the start of the work of the Commission, significant resources have been made available to build and to rebuild the capacity and capability of law enforcement agencies to respond effectively to the findings and recommendations of the State Capture Commission. As a result of this work, the investigating directorate that we established within the National Prosecuting Agency has to date enrolled 26 cases, it has declared 89 investigations, and 165 accused persons have appeared in court for alleged state capture-related offenses. Our law enforcement agencies have to date been granted freezing or preservation orders to the value of 12.9 billion rand. A total of 2.9 billion rand has been recovered and returned to the affected entities and SARS has collected 4.8 billion rand in unpaid taxes arising from the work of the Commission. Consideration is being given to claims for civil damages against companies implicated in state capture and to ban them from doing business with the state. In addition to the people and companies named in the Commission's report, analysis by the Financial Intelligence Centre has identified a further 595 individuals and 1,044 entities that may be implicated in the flow of funds from state capture. Relevant information has been compiled into reports to various law enforcement agencies, other bodies like the State Security Agency, the South African Reserve Bank, the Public Protector, the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, and the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, and a number of law enforcement agencies in other countries. In addition to recommending actions against the perpetrators of state capture, the Commission made 95 recommendations that would require constitutional legislative, regulatory, and operational changes. It also made recommendations on the establishment of new institutions. 
I'd like to outline here some of the key reforms that government is taking in response to the Commission's recommendations. The Commission made detailed recommendations about the establishment of an independent public procurement anti-corruption agency. It also recommended the establishment of a permanent anti-corruption commission that would have oversight over both Parliament and the Executive. The Commission's recommendations underline the need for a coherent and integrated approach to combating corruption, fraud and maladministration. It is therefore appropriate that these recommendations form part of a fundamental redesign and review of the country's anti-corruption architecture. Based on the advice of the recently appointed National Anti-Corruption Advisory Council and the outcomes of a review of our anti-corruption architecture by the Department of Justice, a comprehensive proposal on an effective and integrated anti-corruption institutional framework will be produced for public consultation, finalization and implementation. To address concerns about the independence of the NPA, legislative amendments will introduce greater transparency and consultation in the selection and appointment of the National Director of Public Prosecutions. This will draw on the process that we adopted for the selection of the current NDPP. The State Capture Commission made several detailed recommendations with respect to procurement reform, which we support and accept and are working to put into effect. The abuse of the procurement system was one of the main ways that taxpayer funds were illicitly diverted to private interests instead of providing value to the people of our country. The Public Procurement Bill, which is expected to be finalized and submitted to Parliament by March 2023, will address many of the Commission's recommendations. These recommendations include the introduction of a code of conduct setting out the ethical standards for procurement, protecting accounting officers from criminal or civil liability for acting in good faith, harmonization of public procurement legislation, making procurement more transparent, and establishing a professional body for public procurement officials. As recommended by the Commission, lifestyle audits for the President, Deputy President, Ministers and Deputy Ministers is being managed by the Director General in the Presidency and undertaken by an independent external service provider. The Commission found that the appointment and removal of board members and senior executives in state-owned enterprises was one of the key causes of state capture. The lack of compliance, transparency and accountability in the appointment of board members was not only enabled, did not only enable the capture of these companies, but also contributed 
to a decline in their operational and financial performance. That is why government accepts the Commission's recommendations on the need for a process for the appointment of boards of state-owned enterprises that is not open to manipulation. This would include the involvement of independent panels with appropriate technical expertise to recommend suitable candidates to the relevant minister. No board member will be allowed to be involved in procurement processes as has happened during the state capture period beyond playing an oversight role. Ministers will be prohibited from playing any role in procurement within state-owned enterprises or departments. The State Capture Commission recommended the establishment of a commission of inquiry into the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa, PRASA, because the Commission said it has an uneasy perception that there is much about the ills at PRASA that has not yet been uncovered. Close quote. Our view is that the establishment of a further Commission of Inquiry into PRASA must be considered against existing initiatives that are probing the collapse of PRASA. There are currently investigations into PRASA by the Hawks and a wide-ranging probe by the Special Investigating Unit, including investigating governance and maladministration. I'd like to wait the outcome of those investigations before deciding on the establishment of a Commission of Inquiry. The State Capture Commission also exposes the central role that private sector actors played in state capture, both through direct involvement in procurement corruption, fraud and money laundering, but also in weakening institutions that stood in the way of state capture. These perpetrators included management consultants, both local and foreign, advisors, accountants, auditors, lawyers, bankers, as well as providers of goods and services, including large multinational firms. To address some of the abuses by private companies, amendments will be made to laws currently under review to, among others, criminalize donations to political parties in expectation of state contracts to bar supp suppliers who have engaged in dishonest or corrupt behavior and to make failure to prevent bribery and offense. The Commission investigated various allegations of illegal activities and abuse of state resources at the State Security Agency. The Commission found that weaknesses in our intelligence services regulatory framework made them particularly vulnerable to abuse for political and personal gain. We will implement all the Commission's extensive recommendations on the intelligence services together with the recommendations of the high-level review panel on the SSA chaired by Professor Sidney Mufamadi. 
A new General Intelligence Law Amendment Bill will implement many of the Commission's recommendations, including establishing separate domestic and foreign intelligence services, improving oversight of intelligence agencies, and giving practical effect to the principle that no member of the executive responsible for intelligence may be involved in the operational matters of the SSA. The Commission identified whistleblowing as an essential weapon in the fight against corruption. The actions of whistleblowers have played a vital role in exposing many of the activities that were part of state capture. Whistleblowers need to be encouraged to report instances of fraud and corruption and need to be protected from victimization, prejudice or harm. The Department of Justice is reviewing the Protected Disclosures Act and Witness Protection Act to give effect to the Commission's recommendations on the protection of whistleblowers. This will ensure, among others, that whistleblowers receive the protections afforded by the UN Convention Against Corruption and that whistleblowers have immunity from criminal or civil action arising from honest disclosures. The Commission made recommendations for the consideration of far-reaching reforms to the country's electoral system. These reforms include the direct election of the President by the population and the adoption of a constituency-based but still proportionally representative electoral system. These proposals are meant to address weaknesses in the ability of Parliament and its elected officials to provide sufficient oversight to prevent state capture. Due to the far-reaching consequences of the recommendations on the electoral reform and the fact that they would require constitutional amendments, it is appropriate that they are considered by the political parties represented in our Parliament and form part of an extensive process of consultation that involves the society as a whole. These consultations should take into account of the broad-based engagements as well as views that were expressed by our people right across the country in the drafting of our Constitution. The State Capture Commission made certain observations with respect to the responsibility of the President and Premiers for the actions and failures of Ministers, Deputy Ministers and MECs respectively. The Commission made the fundamental point that persons who occupy positions in government must be people of integrity who conduct themselves ethically and in compliance with the law. Therefore, in exercising my powers with respect to members of the Executive, I am required to consider the Commission's findings, recommendations and observations about particular individuals. In this regard, I am attending to the Commission's recommendations and observations on members of the Executive against whom 
adverse findings were made. The Commission found that in several instances Parliament had not been effective in holding the Executive to account. It made several recommendations to remedy the shortcomings that it identified. Some of these recommendations had to do with Parliament's internal arrangements, such as the chairing of portfolio committees, while others related to Parliament's interface with the executive and how to ensure that ministers account to Parliament fully and regularly. In giving consideration to these recommendations, we are mindful of the separation of powers and the right of Parliament to determine its own rules and arrangements within the provisions of our Constitution. In this regard, Deputy President David Mabuza, who is the leader of government business, will interact with Parliament's presiding officers on the Commission's recommendations on the interface between Parliament and the Executive. To ensure that Parliament is sufficiently resourced to hold the Executive to account, the National Treasury will engage with Parliament to determine the most appropriate way to give effect to the Commission's recommendations on the funding of Parliament. If we are to successfully end state capture and turn the tide on corruption, the actions set out in my response to the State Capture Commission will require dedicated coordination and effective implementation. This regard I've directed various departments in government, ministers, to ensure that there is full implementation. Progress will be closely monitored and regularly communicated. All sections of society will also be engaged and involved in the implementation of the actions to give effect to the recommendations of the Commission. In conclusion, let me express on behalf of the people of our country our profound gratitude to the dedication and wisdom with which Chief Justice Raymond Zondo led this commission. We once again extend our gratitude to the Secretary of the Commission, the heads of the investigation and legal teams, the evidence leaders, the researchers and other commission staff. We recognize the contribution of the former public protector advocate Tulima Donzela, whose initial investigation into allegations of state capture laid the foundation for the establishment of the State Capture Commission. The submission of this response to Parliament gives full effect to the remedial actions contained in the public protector's report of November 2016. While it marks the end of a chapter in our country's history, the hard work to restore our country, repair our institutions, and rebuild our trust in each other still lies ahead. This administration is firmly committed to undertake this task, to combat corruption in all its forms, in every part of government and in every sphere of the state.
where corruption has occurred, for example, in the procurement of the COVID-19 related goods. We have acted swiftly to prosecute those responsible and recover stolen funds. This has been made possible in large part due to our efforts to strengthen the South African Police Service, the Hawks, the National Prosecuting Authority, the South African Revenue Service, SARS, the Financial Intelligence Center, the Special Investigating Unit and other important agencies. This stands in stark contrast to the period of state capture where perpetrators were able to act with impunity, confident that they would not face the consequences of their actions. This is no longer the case. The people of South Africa are tired of corruption and want it to end. Those who are involved in corruption or who are even thinking about engaging in criminal conduct must know that all the instruments of the state will be used to bring them to book. There will be no place for corrupt people, for criminal networks, for perpetrators of state capture to hide. Now that our response to state capture commission has been submitted to Parliament, we look forward to the deliberations and suggestions of members of Parliament and from across society as we take forward the recommendations of this commission. As a country, we are emerging from a very dark and difficult period. Together we have chosen a path of rebuilding, a path of renewal, a path of transparency and accountability, and a path of justice and the rule of law. I have every confidence that no matter the challenges, we will walk this path together and we will prevail because we are South Africans. I thank you. May God bless South Africa. Good night. And uh, that was an address uh, delivered earlier today uh, by Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa on the uh, findings of the Zondo uh, Commission uh, looking into uh, state capture, corruption uh, related uh, to those who hold office and collaboration with others outside of government to uh, expropriate uh, funds and resources uh, from uh, the South African state. And uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. Nothing 
October 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we're going to move into a segment on the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, that uh, Congress uh, ended uh, earlier today. And uh, we'll have a report uh, from Africa Talk uh, discussing the Congress in light of uh, Africa-China relations. Let's listen in. China Global Television Network. China's biggest political event this year, the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, has wound up at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. Closely watched globally, it determines party leadership and the direction of the country's domestic and foreign policy. This week on Talk Africa, we examine some of the CPC's achievements in the last decade and how these have impacted Africa's political, social and economic development. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. At the opening of the Congress, President Xi Jinping unveiled a report showcasing some of the goals of the CPC in the coming years. Before we begin our discussion, let's take a listen at the highlights of his address. From this day forward, the central task of the Communist Party of China will be to lead the Chinese people of all ethnic groups in a concerted effort to realize the second centenary goal of building China into a great modern socialist country in all respects and to advance the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation on all fronts through a Chinese path to modernization. To build a modern socialist country in all respects, we must first and foremost pursue high-quality development. 
Development is our party's top priority in governing and rejuvenating China, for without solid material and technological foundations, we cannot hope to build a great modern socialist country in all respects. We must uphold and improve China's basic socialist economic system. We must unswervingly consolidate and develop the public sector and unswervingly encourage, support and guide the development of the non-public sector. We will work to see that the market plays a decisive role in resource allocation and that the government better plays its role. China has always been committed to its foreign policy goals of upholding world peace and promoting common development, and it is dedicated to promoting a human community with a shared future. China remains firm in pursuing an independent foreign policy of peace. It has always decided its position and policy on issues based on their own merits, and it has strived to uphold the basic norms governing international relations and to safeguard international fairness and justice. Well, joining me now to unpack the significance of the 20th CPC National Congress are from Beijing, Victor Gao, current affairs commentator and chairman of the China Energy and Security Institute. In Johannesburg, Professor David Monyai, international relations and foreign policy expert and director at the University of Johannesburg Center for Africa-China Studies. And from Nairobi, Dr. Adere Kavins, an international relations scholar with a focus on China-Africa relations. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Victor Gao, if I may start off with you, because you're following the developments in Beijing. The biggest political event of the year is now happening in China. What is the CPC National Congress about it? Why is it important? This 20th Party Congress is extremely important because it will summarize what has happened over the past five years or even past 10 years since President Xi Jinping became the paramount leader of the Communist Party of China, as well as of China, uh, Chinese president and the chairman of the Central Military Commission. And it will also forecast into the coming five years and all the way to year 2035, as well as to the middle of this century. Therefore, not only in terms of matters within the CPC itself, for example, appointment of new members of the CPC Central Committee, Politburo Standing Committee on the Politburo, etc., but also in terms of formulating new strategies and chartering out, charting out the new uh, roadmap for China as a whole, as well as how to position China's relations with the rest of the world, including with African countries, for example, this is the most important thing. And because China is such an important and influential country on the global stage, whatever CPC 20th Party Congress will do will have a major impact on the global affairs. This will have a major impact on global affairs. Dr. Adera, so what does the Party Congress mean to, for China's policy agenda, but also particularly for the broader international community? China has become a very important international actor. And what happens in China now has uh, implications for the rest of the world, uh, more so the developing south, where China has become a leading um, you know, development projects financier, for example, here in Africa. Uh, Chinese foreign policy objectives and uh, strategies, such as Belt and Road Initiative, have continued to be implemented uh, around the world. And this Congress, what is going to happen here in terms of the decisions that are going to be made, 
will have real implications for development aspirations of many countries around the world, and not least here in Africa. And that is why I think many people uh, in the continent are watching to see what is likely to, to happen, what new policies are coming out, how are they likely to impact the, the, the relations between China and African countries individually, and also at uh, the regional level, especially through initiatives or platforms like the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. Right, so we're going to look uh, later, a little bit later on on those implications for African countries particularly. But Professor Munyai, we, we do know that China has dramatically changed in the last 10 years. What would you say have been some of, the, uh, some of China's biggest achievements over time? I think we have seen massive uh, uh, movement within China in terms of development. Development in uplifting people from poverty, uh, development in infrastructure development, as well as technological advancement. Uh, and beyond that, I uh, think what President Xi Jinping and CTC have done extremely well, which is a lesson for Africa, is to be people-centered and sensitive to issues uh, that uh, the wider community uh, confronts. I think we have seen uh, the widening of the rule of law, uh, as well as stabilization and fulfillment of 1949 uh, revolutional aspiration of unifying the entire um, China. And I think we've seen stability in Macau right. uh, going back to China. We've seen the Hong Kong stabilized and uh, with an outstanding Taiwan. Uh, these are key issues. Uh, that uh, particularly African leaders are watching quite closely and learn uh, from China. Victor Gao, you're following this from uh, Beijing, of course, and uh, many people have been looking back over the last five years or ten years and, and you know, noting the achievements that China have made. From a Chinese standpoint, what have been some of the biggest achievements? Well, quite a few, as a matter of fact. Uh, for example, over the past ten years, China has become the largest country in terms of the uh, fast speed train. And China ranks number one in terms of the total mileage, but also in terms of the complete nationwide uh, network. And uh, China is already helping other countries, including, for example, Indonesia and other ASEAN countries in building up their fast speed train. And I hope China will also help many Euro uh, African countries to start building this very important infrastructure as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Secondly, China does and China has achieved the major breakthroughs in technological development in terms of deep space, for example, deep sea, uh, AI and uh, 5G, 6G, you name it. And uh, to such an extent that it is generally believed that by 2024, the Chinese space station will be the only space station orbiting the Earth. And further, I would say, China has projected a new way looking forward. That is the shared future of mankind as a whole, basically uh, focusing on treating every country, big or small, as an equal, and no country should be left behind. So I think China not only has done a wonderful job economically speaking at home with many countries in the world, and also has projected a better vision for the world. That is a world based on equality and sustainability, and every country will cooperate together rather than, for example, artificially or arbitrarily 
being divided into opposing blocks. Right. Dr. Adera, let me do come back to you because uh, we want to look at this from Africa's standpoint. And, and China is a, Africa's largest trade partner today. So what have been, uh, when you look at it though, what have been some of the biggest achievements from an African standpoint and in relation to Africa? I think as you rightfully said, uh, for 13 years in a row, China has been Africa's largest trade partner. Uh, in the last decade, Chinese companies operating in Africa has contributed to 20 percent, you know, economic growth of the continent. And we've seen China, uh, you know, emerge as the most favored destination by young Africans seeking higher education abroad. Actually, a recent survey indicates that more young Africans believe that China has had net positive good, you know, in its cooperation with Africa compared to the traditional partners of the continent. We've also seen China engage in massive modernization of Africa's productive sectors, ranging from transportation to uh, digital inclusion, uh, energy, as well as uh, health and education. These achievements have uh, also come as a result of, uh, I think, uh, a peaceable foreign policy platform upon which uh, China has engaged you know, African countries. Uh, I think President Xi Jinping, for instance, has won many African leaders simply because he carries a message of development and peace uh, compared to, for example, messages coming from other capitals around the world. So these some of these successes, I hope, uh, that they can be built on, uh, for example, in terms of promoting greater uh, trade inclusion, uh, not just the numbers, uh, but also in terms of quality. So let me look at some of the statements that came out of, of the Congress, because uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Victor Gao, Xi Jinping said during the Congress that China will accelerate creating a new development pattern and making the domestic market stronger. What exactly does that mean? Are we likely to see a continuity in policy, or is there going to be a paradigm shift, Victor? No, I don't think there will be a major paradigm shift for China. And as far as Africa is concerned, for example, yes, China was very much involved in many African uh, countries when they were doing their best to achieve national uh, independence, for example. And that's very political and very strategic. But since 2000, China has been increasingly involved in many African countries to such an extent, as the other panelists correctly said, that China has been the largest treaty partner with Africa as a whole continent and also with many African countries. Now, uh, back in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, many people in the world tend to say that Africa was the forgotten continent. I think it is true that it is mainly due to China's relentless efforts in engaging with Africa and engaging with the African brothers and sisters, that Africa is now one of the most promising continents in the whole world. And different countries from different parts of the world are now talking about making investments, engage with African people and companies, for example. This is truly a very good turnaround of the events. From the Chinese perspective, we do believe that China and Africa are equal, and all of us need to treat each other as brothers and sisters. I always believe Whatever China can do, African countries can do the same. So long as we focus on development and opening up our economies to the rest of the world right. and focus on peace and avoid any confrontation or rivalry or war. All right. We're going to take a short break now. Do stay with us. When we come back, we'll carry on with our discussion on the 20th CPC in National Congress. Don't go away.
Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me are uh, Victor Gao, Professor David Monyai, and Dr. Adere Covins. Before the break, we looked at the achievements of the CPC in the last decade. Let's now look at how Chinese foreign policy may impact Africa in coming years. Uh, Dr. Adere, would you talk about the impact that China has had uh, on Africa over the last decade? Now, China has unveiled its new dual circulation development plan where domestic and external markets can reinforce each other. How exactly will this work? How will this create new opportunities, particularly for Africa? Well, we've seen, uh, I think, from the Congress, uh, the President Xi Jinping's address, uh, where there's a, an emphasis, uh, for example, maybe movement towards a more service-oriented economy for China, the issue of dual speculation, where China is trying to promote, fortify its own domestic uh, uh, you know, market, while at the same time continuing with its reform and opening and welcoming the rest of the world to trade with China. I think there is an opportunity here for Africa to take advantage, for example, of the Chinese consumer market. Uh, China has in recent years stated very clearly the interest to promote, you know, African agricultural produce uh, into the Chinese market through, for example, the Green Lanes initiative launched in uh, Dakar, uh, FOCAC uh, forum. And I think that uh, countries like Kenya have already taken advantage of some of these uh, opportunities, uh, for example, with the export of uh, fresh avocado uh, fruits to China, becoming the first country in Africa to do so. And as China turns more towards services, uh, that then leaves an opportunity for Africa to take advantage of the manufacturing capabilities that China might be willing to offshore. And I believe that Africa has the skills needed as the infrastructure that has been put in place thanks to its strategic partnership with China and an increasingly agile population that is willing to tap into some of these uh, opportunities. So I believe that uh, while China is deploying the so-called dual circulation strategy in its economic fortification, the capability and opportunity to work with Africa still exists. Right. Professor Monia, what are the uh, opportunities, though? Because even as you talked about reform and opening up, which has been the party's guiding principle over the past four decades, now by applying the new development uh, you know, philosophy and making the domestic market a mainstay, do you feel that China is beginning to look forward? Is China beginning to look inward? I think you're going to see a China that is opening, but uh, quality opening. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, that it is not going to be like in 1978 or 2000, where it was uh, endless opening. It will be a question of taking advantage of its population. That has changed. Uh, the population is aging, yet it's also uh, upskilling uh, with wealth, a middle class going beyond 400 million, um, and that it opens opportunity for a number of countries in the world, particularly Africa, in a number of sectors. For instance, 
the uh, tourism sector. Uh, it will open up uh, opportunity uh, given um, the fact that China is stabilizing its security, uh, allowing more Chinese coming to uh, the African continent. Uh, but beyond that, you're going to see a different kind of investments. Um, uh, recently, all my colleagues talking about avo, avocado from Kenya to uh, China, uh, in our neighboring country, Zimbabwe, uh, Chinese are helping Zimbabweans uh, opening what is coming to become the biggest steel plant, right. uh, much bigger than the South African plant. So I think that will go a long way in boosting Africa's uh, Agenda 2063 uh, in ensuring that uh, more investments, more Africans are involved, and Africa uh, refines its raw material. I think beneficiation is quite critical for Africans. All right, Victor Gao, tell us about the Chinese-style modernization and, and how this will conform to socialist values. What are the defining aspects and how will this impact the global landscape? This is a new concept that President Xi Jinping uh, first brought to the attention of the whole party and the whole nation at the uh, beginning day of the 20th Party Congress. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that the Chinese uh, style pathway to modernization has several crucial importance and important points. One is that the Chinese modernization need to be inclusive, meaning that no one in China should be left behind. Everyone should be entitled to participating in the accumulated wealth for the Chinese people and wealth polarization should be minimized rather than being allowed to uh, be maximized. In that way, the Chinese society will be more equal and equitable, social justice will be more enhanced, and everyone will be happy, while uh, incentives will continue to be provided for innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship. But in the secondary redistribution sector, for example, the whole society needs to be made more equitable. That's number one. Number two is that the Chinese economic development and modernization going forward need to be more conscientious as far as environmental protection is concerned. Mm -hmm. That is, how to protect the uh, mountains and the rivers uh, from pollution, and how to make sure that the social awareness of the importance of um, environmental protection and uh, fulfilling our responsibilities under the climate change agreements, for example, right. need to be achieved. And then the whole society will be more beautiful and more ecologically uh, livable. Now, the other point, allow me to emphasize very quickly, that is the Chinese modernization need to be very much based on technological breakthroughs and creativity. We need to move from made in China to designing China and then eventually invented in China. This will be a crucial transformation. And by doing that, the Chinese modernization will be more user-friendly, more environmentally friendly, and more justice-oriented. And this applies to China itself as well as to all the trading partners of China. Dr. Adere, you know, even as we look at China's domestic policies and how this uh, will affect the global landscape. The IMF is predicting that the world will fall into economic recession in 2023. Now, with greater weight being put on domestic demand-driven growth, how will China's economic policies affect Africa's economic recovery path? I think China has become one of the most important uh, <clears throat> economic 
partners, for example, for many African countries. Uh, this Congress is taking place at a time of great international peril, uh, characterized by you know, the conflict going on in Ukraine. Uh, many economies are still struggling to climb out of the COVID-19 pandemic situation. And then some countries like Kenya are uh, facing dire uh, situations as a result of the aggravated impacts of climate change. Now, Chinese decision-making uh, will uh, be very influential in terms of how China uh, plays its international roles and obligations. Remember that China is the second largest economy, accounts for over 18% of the global economy. The stability of the Chinese economy in itself is a stabilizing factor for the international economy. And that, that has got to do with the well-being of this emerging uh, economy. Now, China is also a major creditor for uh, many African economies and, and how uh, they make uh, you know, agreeable uh, 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 frameworks of managing uh, the debt uh, so that uh, the African affected by uh, the difficulties occasioned by this triple effect of climate change, pandemic, and, and, and conflict are able to navigate out of these tough economic times ahead. Uh, so I believe at multilateral level, again, China is expected to play a strong multilateral uh, you know, move uh, as, as a unifier, as, as a champion of the interests of developing countries, so that even within the forums like IMF, uh, there can be responsive policies uh, that can also aid, uh, you know, um, a movement of, of, of these most affected developing economies out of the eminent economic recession. Right. Professor Monya, I do want to, uh, you know, very briefly look at uh, the foreign policy aspect as uh, Dr. Adere talked about China being a unifying factor because uh, President Xi Jinping said that a significant shift is uh, currently taking place in the international balance of power and that it presents a historic opportunity for China. So how do you see China positioning itself to raise its standing and influence in the world? It's a question of uh, uh, China playing um, within multilateral system, uh, bringing stability, um, the rule of law, uh, and ensuring that Africa is involved. There are a number of platforms uh, in which China will do so. Uh, um, China plays a critical role within uh, BRICS, for instance, in which South Africa is a member, and there might be one or more uh, African countries joining. And beyond that, um, China is playing a critical role within the United Nations Security Council, uh, where serious decisions are made affecting the African continent, particularly in peacekeeping, conflict resolution issues, uh, where China is needed. One other major issue is to do with health and the lessons we've learned from the pandemic, uh, COVID-19. I think you've seen uh, the change of your uh, value chain when it comes to vaccines, and there are possibilities that China will boost uh, its investments uh, in manufacturing of vaccines on the African soil and continue to play the key role it has been playing uh, uh, in, in, in the pandemics, uh, whether it's Ebola or any other future pandemics, given the lessons we've learned. And all this will be done at a multilateral level, bilateral level, uh, bringing all um, uh, efforts uh, to train and boost Africa's own health infrastructure through the establishment of Africa's own CDC right. in Addis Ababa 
And we're seeing more efforts taken in other areas uh, in opening up Africa uh, in a much more organized, less conflict-ridden, and uh, ensure that the geopolitics, particularly tension with the United States, right. does not negatively affect the African continent. All right, gentlemen, we're going to wrap up in a minute. I want to get a very brief comment uh, from you on the key takeaways. Victor Gao, let me start off with you. What are your key takeaways from the 20th Party Congress, and what do we expect from China over the next five years? First of all, China and the Communist Party of China and the Chinese nation will be more united uh, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, 20th Party Congress. And China will be more focused on domestic development as well as overseas engagements. And China will become a more important and influential force standing up for peace, development, and cooperation. And against any attempts to uh, launch another Cold War or several Cold Wars or even hot wars in the world. So in that sense, China is a major force for multilateralism, globalization, and peaceful cooperation between and among nations. And this applies to China's relations with Africa as a continent, as well as all the African countries. Dr. Adere, your views on the key takeaways from the Congress and uh, what to expect from China over the next five years? Well, I think uh, one lesson is that uh, it pays to have uh, a knowledge-based bureaucracy and uh, political stability if a country has to move forward. And I think this is a, a major lesson that uh, African countries from draw, can draw from China. Uh, I also like the fact that uh, the Congress seems to be talking about high-quality development, uh, placing emphasis on quality. Uh, and this is good going forward because both Africa and China are, uh, in needy, uh, are in need of designing new strategies that can promote sustainable, inclusive, and innovative ways of engaging uh, across, the, across the sectors that they've been engaging in. Professor Munyai, your final word? Uh, lessons learned is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is people-centered. Uh, it lives up to its aspiration of 1949, of unifying China, uh, these are um, some of the major issues, as well as dealing with some of the challenges that Africa is confronting. Fight corruption and then ensure that you have a highly learned, learned uh, bureaucracy that delivers, that is people-centered. I think that in itself um, is a major lesson that uh, Africa should and must learn from China. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for your thoughts. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to all our guests. Victor Gao, current affairs commentator and chairman of the China Energy and Security Institute. Professor David Munyai, international relations and foreign policy expert and director at the University of Johannesburg Center for Africa-China Studies. And Dr. Adere Kavins, international relations scholar with a focus on China-Africa relations. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. Do keep the conversation going and join us again next week for more of Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi, until next time, And that was uh, the Africa Talk uh, broadcast.
uh, discussing the uh, 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, October 23rd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of our program. Walter Rodney, who was also mentioned in this interview. Let's listen in. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our show. This evening, we have in our studios Mr. Stokely Carmichael, who will share some ideas with us on the international implications of black power. I am your host and moderator, Hayward Henry. To my left is Mrs. Andrea Coxum, a reporter from the Boston Globe. And to her left is Mr. Les Range, a reporter from the Christian Science Monitor. Mr. Carmichael is with us this evening after he has just returned from a trip where black writers held a conference on the continuing dynamics of the black liberation struggle. At that conference, some very interesting and provocative political processes apparently emerged. We've been informed that one of the participants, a brother, Dr. Walter Rodney, has been excluded from return to his homeland. Brother Carmichael, what do you see as the implications of such political activities and decisions by governments as that just made uh, affecting Brother Rodney? Well, I think we have to understand that uh, that's really the United States. That the United States has now developed a new technique, recognizing the danger of uh, black people around the world coming together. The United States has decided that she must break up this process but without appearing as if she's doing it, because if she were to appear as if she was herself doing it, it would only heighten the contradictions. So now what she is doing is that the countries that she controls, she's telling them to bar people who were born there from returning. For example, in Jamaica, the Caribbean, and the latest spot is the Caribbean. The United States has done this all over Africa, but now because of a lot of work that we've been doing quietly in the Caribbean, which is now beginning to surface, she's moving very directly in the Caribbean. Jamaica, the literature of Malcolm X, the literature of Frantz Fanon, the literature of Elijah Mohammed, and the literature of Stokely Carmichael is banned. The literature, that is, any books written by any of these people, cannot be brought into the country. And this is clearly not the workings of the masses of Jamaican people, because all of the people listed are black people talking about the black liberation struggle in the world, and they have not made any offenses, uh, either physical or verbal, against these governments. So that clearly it is the United States moving to block any of this literature, any of these people from entering. Now, the case in point of uh, Dr. Walter Rodney is very important. Now, here's a brother who was born in Jamaica, it's been all over the world, very uh, together, brother. He taught at the University of Tanzania, where we met. He left Tanzania and returned to Jamaica last year. He was teaching at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica, and he's been there quietly. He left five days ago and came to the conference in Montreal, mm -hmm. which was a very explosive conference in terms of the international uh, black people that came together. And when he returned to Jamaica, they deported him. And certainly he has made no, nothing against the Jamaican government. You take my point in view, my own homeland where I was born, Trinidad, I am barred from Trinidad. And again, I have made no offenses against the Trinidadian government. It's clearly, again, the United States afraid of the dynamism of black power getting hold in those islands and knocking out the control that the American imperialists have over the Caribbean islands. Are you saying then that it is the official or and or unofficial policy of the United States government to take specific steps 
to prevent the spread of black power in other black nations. I'm saying that precisely, yes. In this country here, its object has been to co-opt the black power uh, slogan, to have uh, people think that you can have black power and black capitalism work hand in hand, which is absolutely absurd and nonsensical. It is a, a way to dilute the definitions and to confuse the masses of our people and to completely corrupt the political ideology of black power. But sensing that around the world other people are now beginning, black people, to look towards black power, its aim is to cut those international ties. I'm saying precisely, and I charge the United States with that, yes. For example, I cannot travel to England. I cannot travel to Venezuela. I cannot travel to Trinidad. I cannot travel to Jamaica. I cannot travel to the Bahamas. I cannot travel to Argentina. And I've done nothing against any of these countries. What do you interpret as the specific reason for the action taken against Brother Rodney? Do you well, think it was because of his association with this particular conference? It's clearly because of that association, you see, because this conference brought together people from the West Indies, people from Africa, people from Canada, people from the United States, and people from South America. All these people were black. And we were all talking about internationalizing the concept of black power and moving concretely to begin to find bases where black people can begin to hang their hats. This causes and spells trouble for the United States. Therefore, it must move against this type of, of, of work. Uh, Brother Carmichael, are there other black political refugees in this country, such as Rap Brown and others who have uh, spoken out? Yes, I think that the United States is moving on two battles, on two fronts. For example, when I returned to the country last year, the United States illegally seized my passport and held it for eight months. It had no grounds for which to take my passport. I traveled to Cuba, I traveled to North Vietnam, I traveled to Algeria, to Syria, to Egypt, and to China. All of these countries, one is forbidden to use your passport for entry. See, the passport said that this document, it is invalid to use this document to travel into Cuba, North Vietnam, China, and they list the countries. I never used the passport to travel into Cuba, into Vietnam, into China, or anywhere. I was invited by some people in those countries, and I went, and I didn't have to have it stamped, so that they had no right to take my passport. But because the United States is afraid, and more and more because a lot of us are traveling abroad and beginning to hook in internationally, she cannot afford to have that, she sees the passport. Now, politically, it wasn't uh, very well. It didn't go very well with the United States to talk about freedom of travel and still seize my passport. So after a number of maneuvers back and forth, they had to return the passport. But now their aim is to appear as if they have given me a passport, but to stop other countries where the potential of black power can become a reality which will affect American imperialism. Not only its racism, but American imperialism, it now moves to stop. Now, what it does then is moves on two fronts. The second front is that one, the way it moves with Rap Brown, Elridge Cleaver, and Leroy Jones, by making them political refugees where they cannot move. For example, Rap Brown is the only black man in America that lives in Manhattan and needs a visa to travel to Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so this does apply even within the United States? Even within the United States. And the United States employs this around the world. There are hundreds of thousands, I would say even millions, of black political refugees around the world. And we become political refugees and we have absolutely nothing to do with the political struggles that go on. 
The political struggles are white political struggles, but they're white political struggles over the control of black people, and we get caught in the middle. Every time there's a coup in an African country which is brought about by white Western imperialistic forces, then thousands of black people have to run. But again, no one wins because the people who come out on top is white people. Let us take the Congo as a specific example. In the Congo, you had Shambé and Mobutu and Lumumba. When the white imperialist forces killed Lumumba and put Shambé, tens of thousands of black people living in the Congo had to flee the Congo, looking for political refuge in the surrounding countries. When Mobutu is, when Shambé is overthrown, then other thousands have to flee. And again, the, we're always fleeing, but we get nothing. We get nothing because the people who control these puppets like Shambé and the others, uh, in Ankara, who's now in Ghana, and thousands of people who had to flee when Dr. Nkrumah was overthrown, are the white forces that control the wealth and we still have to be running around. My wife is a political refugee from her own country, born and bred in South Africa. Some white invaders come and kick black people out of their own land and tell them they cannot return. We have thousands of political refugees from South Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Southwest Africa, Guinea-Bissau, all of Africa is just plotting with black political refugees, and now the United States is plotting to move it into the Caribbean, and then the final step, of course, into the United States. What? Brother Carmichael, will, will the uh, attempt to create political refugees, black political refugees, uh, do anything to end this an international movement towards black power? Why you speak of? I think that's precisely what the United States is trying to do. For example, if she could forestall or hold back the people who she thinks are a threat to her economy in Jamaica, then she can just cut us out completely, and we cannot go in. So she hopes then to forestall the black liberation struggle, which is really on its peak. Will it be effective? Point. Uh, it will be effective, yes, unless black people now begin to understand how to move to stop that. Now, what happens, unfortunately, is that, again, the white man comes out on top because, for example, the Caribbean islands, islands which black political refugees and people who are concerned about the masses of people living in those islands, we do not want to move against the black, other black people. But what will happen is that we will be forced because the Caribbean now opens itself to a very tent, uh, precarious position. Most of these islands in the Caribbean, for example, thrive off the tourist business. To begin to stop political refugees from entering opens up a course for student rioting and certainly terroristic activities against the tourist industries. How do you specifically recommend that the black American, with his new awareness of the international nature of the struggle, how specifically do we move to effectively counteract or neutralize the kind of political isolation that is occurring. Okay, number one. There are number one, we have to understand how the white West moves. It is clear that whenever they want control of a country, they can no longer just invade the country. So what they have to do is to pit person against person. That's been a technique developed since World War II with the white imperialist forces. For example, they split Korea. There's North Korea fighting South Korea, and they're not invading, they're coming to help the South Koreans beat up the bad guys, because they're the good guys. They split North Vietnam against South Vietnam, and they're not invading, but they're coming to help the good guys in South Vietnam beat up the bad guys in North Vietnam. <laughs> and now we see they've done the same thing in Nigeria. 
They have split again. Now there's Biafra versus Nigeria, and they're not going to be invading, but they're just going to come and help the good guys. Whichever they decide happen to be the good guys. Of course, it's going to be with their interest. So we must begin to consciously recognize this so that we can't be out there picking sides with Nigeria and picking sides with Biafra, but rather talking about these two people getting together and stop fighting because nobody's profiting but the white man. Because the fighting by Biafra and Nigeria, while heightened certainly by tribal, uh, uh, tribalistic uh, uh, um, differences. differences, thank you, English, <laughs> tribalistic differences. <laughs> Tribalistic differences certainly is not really the sole context of the fight. Biafra is very uh, rich in oil. And since the Arab countries have closed their oil ports due to the conflict in the Middle East, it would be very helpful for practically every white country in Europe to be able to get to that oil. Now, Brother Carmichael, it seems that the same kind of process is happening in many of the South American nations today in which the United States is economically and politically controlling them. How do you compare the attempt by many of the Asian and African nations to engage in liberation struggles as opposed to those in Latin America? I don't. I think we are going to. There's no alternative. I think that in terms of the Asian situation, it's clear. It's crystal clear. The United States controls completely Japan. Japan is, as far as I'm concerned, yellow America. And through her control of Japan, she's trying to stretch out her tentacles to influence the rest of Asia. Thank God Vietnam is stopping her, because Vietnam really represents the real block to what she wants to get to, China. Now, in Latin America, the only block they've had is Cuba. But Cuba is not really a military threat. It's only a political threat. It's an island which uh, they have to fight the political ideas because the political ideas of the Cuban revolutionaries might spread to, uh, to the other Latin American countries. But other than that, there is no threat. Now, the next spot left, obviously, is Africa. And Africa becomes central because if black people who are aware, becoming aware to a political consciousness begin to hook up with Africa inside America, then America becomes in a lot of trouble. Because if, for example, America decided to invade South Africa, decided to invade Haiti, decided to invade Trinidad, decided to invade Tobago, Jamaica, on the side of the good guys, then the black people in this country could stand up and say, keep your hands off of it, it's a black man's fight, stay out. And if she refuses to, then she has another war inside. Mm -hmm. Is there any attempt going on now to get this kind of political awareness for black people in America for the total picture of, of the struggle oh, yes. internationally? Oh, yes. While the United States has been busy trying to dilute the concept of black power and make it look as if it's a local nonsense, some of us have been internationalizing it because black power cannot be seen in a local aspect of black power in Boston or black power in Roxbury or black power in the United States or black power in Canada or black power in the West Indies. It has to be seen in black power in the world. It must be seen in that context. One of the early uh, black political refugees from this country was Robert Williams. Uh, do you know where he is at this time and what political Mr. activities here in, he's involved in? Mr. Williams was in China. He's now in Tanzania and he's working with the people who are setting up the new Republic of Africa inside this country. He is the leader of that group, and uh, they themselves are now trying to get and band together with a number of um, other political refugees. For example, Tanzania is just loaded with political refugees because it's right on the border of Mozambique. And see, all of the people who flee 
from the, the, the harsh treatment of the Portuguese or even the brothers and sisters who get a chance to flee from South Africa uh, as soon as they run up they always come right into Tanzania. What is your opinion about the attempt being made to establish the Republic of New Africa? Have you had a chance to meet yet with any of the brothers and sisters involved? No, I haven't had a chance to really have a serious talk at it. I think it's uh, another area where people are thriving and that we should try each in our own area to see which one works best. Um, I don't know very much about it, but uh, I think that uh, the people who are in it are serious about what they're doing. And uh... Welcome back. And uh, that was the uh, interview uh, with uh, Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, in 1968 on a uh, Boston uh, radio station. He was, of course, uh, talking about the uh, Black Writers Conference, the banning of Walter Rodney from uh, Jamaica, who was teaching at the University of the West Indies at Mona uh, during that time period, and uh, other issues in regard to the uh, internationalization of the black struggle, formation of the Republic of New Africa in Detroit in um, uh, March of 1968, among other issues. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program for today, uh, Sunday, uh, October the 23rd, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to today's program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, the legendary Dinah Washington. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 